Could it really be possible that Ohio soon will have a central registration system for people that want a coronavirus vaccine? Please say it is so. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues Chris Ranowski and Laura Johnston. Jane Cahoon is taking a couple of days off for her birthday. Morning. We're going to be talking about the central registry. Do you think that will be a reality? I hope so. (laughs) And I hope there's enough vaccine to make a central registry worthwhile. Yeah, I think that's going to happen, although I'm I'm wiggly on this Johnson and Johnson vaccine. (laughs) So, all right, let's get started. Why is Ohio spending $3.6 million to create its own coronavirus vaccine registry when the federal government has a system already available? Laura Johnston, at first blush, you'd think this is the state wasting its money. But when you look at it more closely, it seems like this is the right thing to do. Yeah, I guess the federal system really doesn't work very well. So the state had planned to go with this coronavirus vaccine system developed for the CDC by Deloitte. But there were concerns with it. According to the state, only 10 states are actually using this federal plan. And there's been big problems with it so far. So Ohio tested it through November in December said they decided to go on their own. Of course, we didn't know this was going on at the time, but so the state issued a request for competitive bids, signed a six-month deal with Accenture on January 14th for this $3.6 million deal. That includes 2 million appointments. So obviously there's like 11 million people in Ohio. We're going to be paying more than $3.6 million, and um, it could be a cost of about $0.21 cents an appointment for an extra 200000 but it ratchets it down the cost per appointment as you go up the number of appointments. But there's a couple of things they're still considering, considering purchasing additional features like a virtual assistant to try to help people navigate the website. It does come with some customer support, which is helpful. But, you know, when DeWine said, I think last week, well, it's ready to go. We just got to get the, the pharmacies and the hospitals on board. It doesn't quite sound totally ready to go. No, but actually getting a system that will talk to those other providers does make some sense, which I guess yes. the federal one didn't. I mean, in Hawaii, they had a, the, the guy said, hey, let's keep track of this on paper because the system isn't reliable. So when the federal system is so unreliable, you're keeping paper duplicates as a backup and handwritten form. You really probably don't want to use it. This seems like a smart move. Look, we're supposed to have a whole lot more vaccine within a month. The The floodgates are really supposed to open. Everything I've read says a month from now, there'll be a lot more vaccine available. And that's apart from the, the, the coming Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which has much less of a protection rate than the others. So, you know, th- this system could be needed pretty soon. And it'll be nice if people can go to one place and get directed to wherever they need to go to get the shot. We'll have to see if it works. I mean, DeWine has had successes and failures on the coronavirus. I, you know, we talked yesterday about how targeting the oldest population with the limited amount of vaccine he had was very smart because it greatly reduced the death rate because that's where all the deaths were. On the other hand, he set up a system where the rest of the people in the state who are eligible have to sit on their computer for hours and hours hunting for one pharmacy that might have an opening. And it's it's caused agony for people. That's a big failure. That's a big miss. Even though John Houston keeps saying, you know, we did this. 
we did this to make sure everybody had access. It's like, well, what you did is made sure almost nobody can find access. <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> equally frustrated. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just because they keep saying it doesn't make it true. And every time Houston steps up to say this was for the minority populations, it's like, throw the flag. No, it wasn't. This was for the rural populations at the expense of more urban populations. They should make it central, which I guess they're going to do. Do we? Does anybody have a, a good feeling that this will work? <laughs> I, I mean, if it goes, the, the state has done some good stuff with its vaccine dashboard. You can see where it's going. So, I mean, and, and we are paying a consultant to do this. We're not relying on 10 year old like ODJFS, you know, technology. So that's a little. Wait, 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 wait. Did anybody ask if this is the same consultant that did the unemployment computer? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, sure, no. I sure, I sure hope it's not the same consultant that set up the Texas's independent power grid. That would be really bad. <laughs> yeah, let's hope this one works. Well, we'll have to see. But it's, uh, it sounds like they made the right call that the federal system is not really something you want to be a part of. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Where did the first independent review of the May 30th Cleveland riot come down on whether police issued an adequate dispersal order before using force to break up the crowd? Chris Ranowski, this was a pretty thorough report that the Federal Monitor did. It's the first outsider looking at this. In the past, we've had the sheriff look at the sheriff and the city police look at the city police. It wasn't a vicious ripping apart of what Cleveland police did, but it did have a lot of pointed criticism. Right. Um, the, if people aren't aware, there there's still installed a federal monitor that is in charge of basically overseeing the progress of of the police reform efforts that began uh, way back in the Obama administration back in 2015. And as part of the post May 30th riot review, they issued a 123 page report that was made public on Wednesday right ahead of a court hearing where they had to discuss the report in their annual report. And, and what they found was a lot of, of, of very specific criticisms about what happened. A lot of the report sort of dealt with what happened after, you know, they said that there was a lack of reviewing. There were a lack of, of reports put in by officers. Um, and then they examined the fact that some officers didn't have body cams, I think. But one of the most interesting parts of this, sort of focused on one of the more disputed things that happened during the, the riot. Um, there was a dispute among the police department and a lot of the protesters that we have interviewed over the effectiveness and, and the, and the volume of this, these dispersal orders that police gave to the people who were headed up the stairs and at the front door of the justice center, um, which is where the, the, the more, uh, I guess, violent, conflict took place during that day. The police chief has basically said in the past that they thought that their their orders were adequate, despite the fact that people people who had radios, like officers who had radios on their shoulders, said that they were they could not hear them over the noise of the crowd. This report really sort of dug into the fact that that the the city has a policy on how they're supposed to do these dispersal orders and it didn't follow it during this. Basically they have to give a certain amount of time after the dispersal order is given for people to, to leave. And this basically says they didn't do that. And, and it recommends that, that if, if, if the city wants to prepare for stuff like this in the future, it needs to get something that is louder. And what was kind of odd about it is that one of the things that they recommended is basically something that can be used as a sonic weapon. 
And so it said that if if the the city really wants to go that route, then it would have to sort of get a policy together as to when it would be allowable to use that thing. So it's one of those things where the the cure might be <laughs> might be worse in the in the long run. So it but this was a really fascinating look at it. It was very surgical, very kind of level-headed. And it's worth noting that there there was a hearing later in the day where the police chief did come out and defend some of the stuff that was in his department from some of the stuff that was in this report. So there there are two stories and people want to check them out. Yeah, and look, you've got it there were Oh, there were a lot of acts of misbehavior by police across the country. And in terms of that scale, I think the chief is trying to say, hey, look, you know, yes, this is a problem. We got to fix it. We, we we didn't report uses of force like we should. But remember, this was pretty much a riot. And I think we there, there should be some look at the degree. The, the dispersal order for me was key because we were there. None of our people heard it. And right. we talked to a lot of people. None of them heard it. And, you know, if you if you don't actually hear you're supposed to leave and then tear gas starts flying at you, you're going to be rightly offended. The city maintained that it did it right, I think, more as a, as a thing about liability than anything, because they're required to do that and they didn't. So it was nice to have an independent review come out and say, yeah, you did not do an adequate dispersal order. Nobody knew they were supposed to leave before you launched all these things at them and that. That needs to be fixed. I think if that, if you look at the deficiencies, that was one of the most serious. Although I was unaware. I didn't know if you guys were aware that a whole bunch of the cops there didn't have body cameras on and that you can't attach body cameras to the body armor when they're doing SWAT stuff. What the hell kind of system is that? I mean, SWAT stuff is when you'd think body cameras would be most important. We we had known that because remember, Corey had, Corey Schaefer, who has done the the some of the best reporting on this in the, in the post-riot era here um he he had noted that i think in a, in a previous story so we, that was something we had known about i think it is something that that really needs to be addressed because we were we were trying to get as much video from this as we could and when, when we started getting you know responses that were like hey we don't have video it was like well why and then they they kind of explained to us like well some of them didn't wear them because they couldn't get the cameras to attach to their riot uniforms so that's I mean, it's it's one of those things where it's like a little shady and and <laughs> because this is this is what body cams were kind of made for. Like if, if you really want to make like a spirited defense of your police force, the more video you have, the better. And and it's there's one thing. Oh, come on. Uh, but, but it's even, come on. You go out and you buy body cameras and you don't check to see that to work with body armor. Right. That's a serious dropping of the ball unless it's intentional. Right. Yeah. And. And I think it's worth noting that that there, the other thing that was pointed out in this is that the city, we, we have such a weird police structure here with all of these suburban police departments. And and part of what happens is they, they form these task forces with the city police department and their officers come in during stuff like this. And and they don't really adhere to the reform ideas that, that the city has adopted. And so they said that the city needs to update its mutual aid agreements with suburban police departments to to bring them up to speed. Because if you if you go back and look, a lot of the people that were hurt were actually hurt by police officers that weren't part of the Cleveland Police Department. But, you know, in their jurisdiction, the, the department does have some responsibility to control that. And and I think the monitor that was that was the other kind of key takeaway from this is that they need to 
there needs to be some sort of universal governing of how these things are carried out. Yeah, and I was a little bit surprised to see in their discussion of uh, the guy who lost his eye, because I think it's pretty clear that Cleveland police didn't do that, that mm-hmm. that was much more going to be a deputy sheriff. And yet that was kind of included in the in the big criticism. And I get it that it's your jurisdiction. You should be organized. But it was the courthouse, which is actually under the control of the sheriff. Anyway, it's a good report. Mm-hmm. It, it, it offered lots of areas for repair it 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 shows that cleveland has made a lot of strides really this could have been much worse but they got some more more to do it's this week in the cle who is former president donald trump backing for chairperson of the ohio republican party and does it matter much laura johnston this is it was interesting to see his name surface in this battle this will be resolved very soon uh and he's taking a position Right. He's as active in politics as I think some people hoped he would be. So Bob Padichuk is Trump's former Ohio campaign chairman, and he has Trump's full and complete endorsement to replace Jane Timken, who, as we all know, resigned from the Ohio Republican Party earlier this month to focus on her run for the U.S. Senate. So uh, this guy is a longtime Ohio political operative. He has close ties to numerous elected officials. He ran successful state campaigns for Trump in 2016 and 2020 and held the number two position at the Republican National Committee during the Trump era. So he was already considered the favorite. He has a support of Governor Mike DeWine, and it seems like he's going to be able to walk in and take this. Our reporting basically said it doesn't really matter that this guy probably was a lock, but but Trump getting behind him pretty much makes it a automatic. Yeah, I mean, I think. The other only other declared candidate is John Becker, who's an arch conservative, former state lawmaker from Cincinnati. He left office because of term limits at the end of 2020. But I think even he's kind of conceded in being like, yeah, well, he will win. You know, well, plus he's as we've he's the guy that wanted to have Mike DeWine arrested. And (laughs) he's crazy. So but it is it does show Ohio is very firmly in the control of the Donald Trump side of the Republican Party, unlike in other states where there's a division going on. We're we're in Trump country. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is Cleveland considering an opt-in system for recycling rather than compelling everyone to participate? Chris Ranowski, I suspect you and Laura are going to have a different opinion (laughs) on this than I have, but let's go through the facts before we talk about whether this is a smart idea or not. So a consultant basically recommended that that the city develop an opt-in system for recycling to reduce the amount of materials lost due to contamination and to help improve the efficiency of its program. The recommendation was one of several that GT Environmental made as part of its review of the waste collection and recycling programs here in the city. They basically still have to develop and implement these strategies, but the Jackson administration basically said in a statement that it hopes that that GT will be able to prepare those plans by the spring. Um, Cleveland has not had a recycling program since April when its contract with a recycler expired. The city twice sought uh, bids for a new contract. The first time, no bids were received. And the second time, the city only received one bid. And it was really a, a costly bid. What makes the search even, I think, more difficult is that Clevelanders are kind of notorious for not separating their recycled materials. And and so it the companies that were kind of looking at us weren't expecting the kind of return that they would get in a city that does this a little better. So I think at one point, recycling vendors paid Cleveland about $20 a ton for recyclable goods. 
And by the end of 2018, the city was getting only about a dollar fifty per ton. And it, it's worth noting that I, we're not the only city that is sort of addressing stuff like this. That that part of the problem is that that China basically stopped buying <laughs> buying recycled materials, and so it it made recycling suddenly become a less profitable business but, for a lot of people. But sixty percent of the recycled material picked up by the vendor couldn't be recycled because it was contaminated and mixed. And that's, that's a mess. And so, so I know, Laura, you think recycling is the end all be all of existence, <laughs> but by making people opt in, you're getting the people that truly believe in recycling and they will separate their trash properly and make sure it's not contaminated so that it's, it will get recycled. I mean, it, it, it seems like this makes sense. If you have a long history of being unable to get people to do what they're supposed to do, you know, maybe at some point you just give up. But Laura, you you disagree. I I don't necessarily I don't necessarily disagree because I think recycling is a lot harder these days than it used to be. You know, when we were in school, it was like really simple. You know, reduce, recycle, reuse, and and the idea was that you know you got to recycle all this plastic, but you can't recycle all the plastic anymore. The only plastic you can recycle is you know maybe plastic bottles if everything's rinsed out and you've got the cap on it. You know, I, I can't tell you how much time I spend going through our recycle bin and pulling out like yogurt containers and like the plastic wrap off something. And like, you know, my kids and my husband and be like, you can't recycle this. So it's it's not easy to recycle properly. So you're probably right. Like you could tell everybody to recycle and you're just going to waste everyone's time throwing recycling into the waste anyway. And that that really upsets people because they think recycling is a sham and it's not real. And so, yeah, maybe just get the people who really care about it and are going to separate it according to the rules and take the time to figure it out. I, or do I, the easy thing, right? I mean, since the pandemic began, shipping of products to Americans is off the charts ridiculous. So so there's a huge increase in cardboard boxes. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not hard. I mean, people know what a cardboard box is. Most of the time they might put pizza in there or something which you're not supposed to do. So, So you could do a universal cardboard recycling, but the minute you get into what you just discussed, which which food contaminated containers can I use? People aren't going to work that hard. It's garbage, so they're just going to chuck it. So I, I kind of respect the decision to try and do recycling, but to do it smarter so that a vendor doesn't gouge the city for six million extra dollars to, to get it done. It's odd that in some of the suburbs, we have we seem to have far fewer problems, and but but it sounds like, Chris, that other cities have had the same contamination issue. Yeah, I, I can't imagine that we're alone in that. And it's also worth noting that there were other recommendations in this report, too, that that may actually things that might actually annoy people more than getting rid of recycling. <laughs> like like the, the they recommended that sh the, a shift in the bulk trash collection to a biweekly schedule by appointment only, which I think would really I you know, I think that people. People use that a lot. I don't know if you ever drive around on bulk day here, but it's it, you, know, you see people set out a lot of stuff. But I imagine that that does get costly. So all the all the Cleveland Council people are going to get calls now, just asking them to pick up their bulk trash. Right, yeah, right. They'll keep that just to keep the phone calls down. Right. Um, yeah, it's an interesting quandary. We'll have to see how they end up dealing with it. But uh, but you kind of understand where they're coming from. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How might the election ballots in Ohio be a bit different when it comes to races for judge. Lord Johnston, we've talked about this before, the bizarre situation in Ohio where judges run in partisan primaries in the spring, 
and then appear on the ballot nonpartisan. Makes no sense because we're trying to say it's a nonpartisan race, even though in the primary it is. What is the proposed change that would take the confusion out of it? Well, we could be voting a D or an R when it comes to a November ballot for judges. I love that you think that this is like the only thing that's confusing about elections in Ohio, because there are a lot of weird things, right? But so this bill introduced by uh, state lawmakers would make candidates for the Ohio Supreme Court and other state judicial races include their partisan affiliation on the November ballot. It's a Republican-sponsored bill. Last year, they had the same idea, but it was never voted on by the end of the year. So it expired. So this is the same idea that came up last year. Currently, judicial candidates, like you said, they run in the partisan primaries. Their affiliations aren't listed. There's extensive ethical rules in place to limit political campaigning by the judges. Uh, So the idea is that the judges aren't swayed by political influence. But the Republicans are saying, hey, people know it anyway. We have it on the partisan. Let's just make it as clear as possible to let people know who they're voting for. Yeah, I mean, th- this is one where I get the people that say, let's not list the party affiliation because Democratic or Republican shouldn't matter in a in a race for judge. You're supposed to base your decisions on the law, yada, yada. But but voters don't have a lot of information about judicial candidates. So you could argue that this is at least something that gives them some information. So why not put it on the ballot? Of course, the chief justice of Ohio, Maureen O'Connor, is dead set against this kind of Mm -hmm. thing. She thinks it should be nonpartisan from the get-go. And there's a good argument for that because judicial decisions should not come down to are you a conservative, are you a liberal? You are supposed to base your decision on the law and on the precedent. But but we we shouldn't go forward with what we have, where we pretend it's not partisan when it actually is very partisan. And this would correct it in one direction, even though the chief justice would rather go in the other. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting discussion to have. And one other offshoot of this is that, you know, right now there are more Democrats on the state Supreme Court than there have been in the past. And I think the Democrats are saying it's going to be even harder to get elected in a statewide judicial race if you have a D on your name, which is maybe some of the motivation behind that. But that's an argument to let's fool the people into not (laughs) knowing they know. Look, the other big fallacy of nonpartisan is the dark money, the, the, you know, with Citizens United, this is a non-starter of an argument because that money goes to conservative judges or liberal judges. And until you get rid of that factor in it, where you've got pretty much anonymous donations coming in, then you can't pretend it's nonpartisan. If you, if you got rid of that element of it, maybe, but until then we may as well put the parties on the ballot. So it'll be interesting to see if this passes. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. On a day when Ohio officially counted its 17,000th coronavirus death, what did a statewide survey find about whether most Ohio residents are willing to get the coronavirus vaccine? And what are some of the caveats? Chris Ranowski, this was an interesting survey that came out yesterday. Right. So the Ohio University study that surveyed more than 2,300 Ohio adults in January found that younger Ohioans, Black and Hispanic residents, and residents of rural areas are not as likely to take the COVID-19 vaccine. The study found that uh, participants uh, between the ages of 18 and 24 had the lowest acceptance rate of all age groups at 44.3% with respondents 55 and over having the highest at 72.4%. The survey also saw differences depending on where people live. For Appalachian area rural residents survey, just 
percent were willing to take the vaccine, and that number was about fifty-seven percent for rural non-Appalachian residents, and about fifty-nine percent of metropolitan residents, and sixty-three percent of suburban residents said they'd be willing to take the vaccine. So it's really kind of falling down. It's, I mean, you can kind of see the lines where the distrust of the government exists in, and the medical establishment kind of exists in the survey. Uh, and it, it's kind of fascinating. I, I was a little bit surprised that the younger people that yes, they're less vulnerable and they're more likely to survive the coronavirus, but you know, I thought they might be smarter and not, not buy into some of the conspiracy theory, but that was a really high percentage that don't want it. The other thing that ma- it made me wonder is, with that many people not wanting to get it, one, it's going to make it easier for me to get it, but two, can you reach herd immunity if 40% of, of your population won't get the shot? I guess we'll see. <laughs> That's been a big discussion this whole time around. This is Laura Johnston, that the idea of when we could reach herd immunity, it's dependent. The earlier dates timeline is based on people, 80% of them getting the vaccine. If we're looking at 60%, then we're pushing that way out and talking about all, you know, thousands of more deaths in this country. Yeah, I just it's a it's a bit surprising. I mean, it does for the people that want the shot and there are many. This will make it easier to get it as the as the supply of vaccine goes up, you'll be able to get it. It's just it's troubling that that many people don't trust the government, don't trust the medical establishment. There's a long history right. that shows vaccines do work if there if there is a success here it is in it is it goes completely to the disinformation peddlers because i you see it around i mean there there are people who are deeply deeply into the conspiracy theory that this affects your your ability to have children and you're seeing medical officials saying like they're surprised at how how pervasive that conspiracy theory has gotten that they're seeing it with people who aren't necessarily conspiracy minded that they're just any concern about the ability to not have kids is 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 basically saying like getting people to say like i'm not going to do this well and, and there's not a lot of research being done i mean every the people who who can say it's safe say it is but they haven't shown you know they haven't had to make trials with pregnant women and well so I, and you don't have time i mean you know right. you don't you won't know how safe this is until a generation passes you know, I mean, who knows if in 10 years we all grow third years, but we won't have died of coronavirus. So but I do think that maybe as more and more people get vaccinated, you know, they're not seeing adverse effects. Maybe it'll take, you know, people will come around and we'll kind of have a second wave of people willing to get vaccinated. At least I hope so. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Want to talk about another conspiracy theory? Why are gas prices rising so fast? And are all the Trumpsters I see on Facebook right? Is it Joe Biden's fault? Laura Johnson, what's going on? I've got to get on the road for the first time in two months this weekend, and all of a sudden I got to pay more for gas. Why? You can blame your favorite culprit, the cold weather. Um, this is actually the biggest increase during a winter month in eight years, according to Rich Exner, our data guru, who crunches all of these numbers. The weekly average reported Monday by the U.S. Energy Administration was $2.64 a gallon. That's up from two forty two a week ago and up from two seventeen on January 4th. So there's two major factors at play. One, the rising crude oil prices and refinery shutdowns brought up by winter weather in the Gulf Coast, and then an extent to some Midwest refineries. And this is from AAA. So we're actually about on average in Northeast Ohio is about 266 here. Um, but the good news is that this is a spike. They expect gas prices to drop soon once refineries are back open. 
And I mean, honestly, we're still not paying as much for gas as we used to. So I'm I'm really not super upset about the gas prices. Yeah, but all the Trumpsters paid it. They wrote down what it was when Biden took office to show that it's his fault. Gas prices have gone up and they're already saying, see, 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 Donald Trump should have stayed president because then I'd save 40 cents a gallon. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. That'll do it for another episode. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. Come on back tomorrow for a roundup of the week's news as we head into the weekend. 